Welcome to Investing Companies. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal circumstances or needs. Okay, so we are recording now the second of three podcasts we're doing today. The marathon today. Exactly. And this is the second part of all alternative investment podcast. Podcast, yeah. yeah, exactly. But we have a team activity, you, me, and Will, mm-hmm. as soon as we finish this. Yeah. And this is celebrating a milestone. So we talked about this before, and it was something I arranged that was a secret. Well, I told you guys yesterday, mm-hmm. and you want to talk about what we're doing? We're going on a boat. We are going on a boat. But it is pouring outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Sydney has like 330 days of sunshine. Yeah. And today it it's supposed pouring, to pour all afternoon. Blowing a gale. Yeah. So I, I don't know what this is. I don't think Will's even recording this podcast. He doesn't think we're coming back. So. Exactly. There's no There's no points. Yeah. No. So I don't know if this is going to be like a Gilligan's Island type of situation. You know, we get stranded. Is is that another show that you've never? I've, I think I've seen like it was like an afternoon special, right? And like they had coconut phones and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But you know, the premise of the show is they went on a three-hour tour, but they ended up getting shipwrecked. Mm. So that could happen to us. To us, all right. Yeah. So we we can't even say that this would be the last episode because Will wouldn't be able to edit it. Yeah. <laughs> because he would be with us. Yeah. But anyway, we'll we'll hope for the best. It's a lot of doom and gloom. So exactly. <laughs> why don't we turn our attention to alternative investments again? And this episode, we're going to talk about alternative investments and how we should think about them as investors. So first, we can cover off on direct investments into this space. As we said earlier, when talking about the growth of hedge funds in the US, there was criteria that needed to be met in order to invest in them. In Australia, if you meet that criteria, you are a sophisticated or wholesale investor. For an individual to meet that criteria, you need to make $250,000 in gross income for two financial years in a row, or you need to have $2.5 million in net assets. If that is the case, then you could invest directly into hedge funds or private equity. Yeah, and the issue with private equity and hedge funds is that the best managers have performed extremely well, and that's, of course, who we hear about, Mm -hmm. but sort of the average, not so great. And there's this famous Groucho Marx quote where he says that he doesn't want to belong to any club that would accept him as a member. And I think this rings true here. You simply are not going to get access to any private equity fund or hedge fund manager that is any good if you have $2.5 million. The reality of the situation is that if you're Yale's endowment fund and you have $30 billion, you can just go out and pick from the best of the best. They all want your money. And that isn't the case for many other smaller endowment funds, let alone the vast majority of investors in the world, even if you are quite wealthy and meet the standards. One way you can access private equity and hedge funds is through some industry super funds. We mentioned this in our super episode, but some of the large industry funds like Aussie Super have pretty meaningful allocations to hedge funds and private equity. It should be noted that disclosure is not exactly a strong suit for super funds in Australia or any investment funds in general. And that is a perfect example. There is no disclosure about what these investments are or even the valuations of these investments. Yeah. And, you know, once again, and I feel like I I say this all the time, but once again, you know, the industry hides behind some pretty terrible arguments to justify this. So there was this recent AFR article that I found last night, and it was arguing that disclosing valuations of unlisted assets, so those are like hedge funds and private equity, would put super funds at a disadvantage when negotiating the sale of those assets because buyers would know where to pitch their bids. And this is 
I don't know, a self-serving kind of sham of an argument, right, Shani? Mm. So this is like saying a publicly traded company is being put at a disadvantage by having its share price public because a company wishing to acquire it would know what it's worth. In the real world, there are professionals who are trying to value these assets and then make a bid. A super fund is also trying to value these assets and can make a decision if they want to sell or not. There is some proposed legislation to make this process more transparent, which hopefully, in my opinion, will go through. And much like Australian fund managers who refuse to disclose their holdings because of some perceived disadvantage that apparently doesn't impact the rest of the developed world (laughs) who does disclose this. um, Yeah, same type of thing. So when I turn over my hard-earned money or, I guess, to be fair, just my earned money (laughs) to someone, I expect some transparency in what they're doing with it. All right. So what are some of the ways you can access these types of investments if you don't want to use an industry super fund? As we discussed, whether you meet the criteria or not, it is likely that you are not going to be given access to the best managers in the world. So the question is, how does an individual investor get access to investments that can play the same type of function in a portfolio? There are some niche products out there that can provide similar opportunities. Crowdfunding platforms for startups, for example, say they are similar to venture capital, but miss the boat on all the things that make venture capital compelling for both investors and startups. Guidance to a startup, a network of entrepreneurs to rely on and help with additional funding rounds. This almost guarantees that you will get companies that don't have other sources of capital. We just got a press release the other day saying Vanek is launching some sort of private equity ETF, which I know you have some strong feelings about, Mark. Is this is this just the episode of my strong feelings? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Um, yeah. This press release I, I found pretty amusing because it had a little bit of everything in it and potentially could be misleading. So it talks about how great private equity is as an asset class, which gives the impression that you're investing in private equity, but you aren't. You're investing in listed companies that run private equity funds. You're not investing in the actual private equity funds. So this is kind of the equivalent of saying that if I buy shares in Magellan, the company, I'm doing the same thing as investing in a Magellan fund. And the best part is the press release goes on to say how critical of a role private equity played in the COVID environment because companies really needed liquidity. And I don't know if they're just reading different newspapers than me, but as far (laughs) as I can tell, every government and every central bank around the world has spent the last 18 months throwing money at every company out there, whether they needed it or not. So I take it you're not going to be buying this ETF. No, that's no. that's a pretty that's <laughs> okay. a pretty safe bet. So where should investors turn? Okay, so why don't we start with hedge funds? So there are a number of absolute return managed funds and even a couple of ETFs that are available. So they charge relatively high fees and in general have higher minimum investments, at least on the fund side of things. So analysts cover a fair number of these funds, but they mostly receive neutral ratings given the fee levels. So we cover 15 of them. And 11 are rated neutral, and then four have a bronze rating from our analysts. And those with the bronze rating include the AQR WS Delta 1F Fund, which sounds like a fighter jet, (laughs) the Ardia Real Outcome Fund, the Aspect Absolute Return Class A Fund, and the Aspect Diversified Futures Class A Fund. But why don't we take a step back to the original point we made about Dave Swenson and the goals of the Yale Endowment. He put a large allocation of his portfolio into hedge funds because he had an annual funding need to meet. So if we look at hedge funds in a more traditional sense of an absolute return fund, I would question if the vast majority of investors need this type of exposure. If you're a long-term investor who's willing to take on risk or volatility in order to earn higher returns, I wouldn't bother at all. I don't think an absolute return fund has a place in most investors' portfolios. 
However, there are some investors that are transitioning to retirement or in retirement where lower volatility in a portfolio is attractive, and there are withdrawals being made from that portfolio. So, Shani, what about those situations? Is there a place for funds in people who meet those qualifications portfolios? Yeah, I mean, potentially there is, but remember, there are substitutes. These are complex strategies with high fees, alternatives that will also effectively lower the volatility of your portfolio, support withdrawals and protect you from sequencing risk, include holding cash and short-term fixed interest as part of a bucket portfolio or purchasing an annuity. A good rule of thumb in investing is that complexity and high fees are a sign that you should take a step back and think about what you're trying to accomplish. Read the investment strategy, which you are considering, and make sure you really understand it and by understand it, we mean that you should be able to explain it to someone who doesn't understand it in plain English. Okay, so let's do an example. Mm. So that's fair. So why don't we why don't we look at that fund that I described as sounding like a fighter jet? Mm-hmm. So as a reminder, that's the AQR WS Delta One F fund. <laughs> um, so I went to their website and they described their investment and approach in the following way. I'll quote them using I'll quote them because I can't even make this yeah. up right. <laughs> Using a bottom-up, clearly defined investment process, the fund seeks to provide exposure to numerous hedge fund risk premiums across three broad strategy groups, stock selection, arbitrage, and macro investment strategies, with a dynamic and disciplined investment process that aims to provide risk-balanced exposure to these underlying strategies. The fund may also hold cash or cash equivalents. I understood that bit. Yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> I like the end, how they just throw that in there. By the way, there could be some cash. Um, But the best part is I looked at their fund fact sheet, which is also available on their website, and they take the name of the fund, so Delta, and they create this kind of acrostic poem out of it. (laughs) Okay, so get this. Get ready, Shani. Okay. So the D stands for dynamic. The E stands for economically intuitive, and I have no idea what that means. Okay. Um, The L is liquid. The T is transparent, which is ironic given the fact that they don't disclose their holdings. And the A stands for alternative. So you really can't make this stuff up. But if you want to invest in this fund, you can pay 1.42% a year. Okay. Why don't we move on from trashing this to uh, investing in private assets, venture capital and private equity? Remember that this is the long-term portion of Dave Swenson's portfolio where he says that his investment horizon is essentially forever. So he is willing to give up liquidity or the ability to quickly convert an investment to cash for higher long-term returns. Let's start with venture capital. As we discussed, venture capital is investing in various stages of startups. As we said, this is once again difficult to get exposure to as an individual. Well, the companies that most resemble startups are small and microcap shares. These are the smallest companies that are publicly traded. That is where you have a higher risk that a company will go bankrupt, but also the opportunity that one of these companies will become the next large cap leader in their sector. Traditionally, this has been a place where there have been opportunities for higher returns, but you will have more volatility in an index, or if you are picking individual shares, a great possibility that a company will go out of business. This is also a place where active management traditionally has been more effective as the market is less efficient. Yeah, and I think if you take venture capital to an extreme, it's really a little bit like investing in call options on small cap shares. So a naked call option basically offers you the opportunity to make a lot of money if a share price rises above a certain price, which is called a strike price, but you lose all your money if it doesn't. So venture capital is also really risky and some of the companies pay off and a lot of them don't at all. So I think the hard thing about venture capital is that so much of the skill 
is not judging the original idea, but judging the founders, because they're likely going to have to pivot and change the business based on the operating environment. It is a lot harder to judge people when you don't have access to them like a venture capital manager would. We have a special request. What drives Shawnee and I to do this podcast and our day jobs is to try and help investors reach their financial goals. Whether you're in retirement or just starting out, you want to hear your story and how Morningstar has helped you build a better financial future for your family. We're filming a short set of testimonial videos that will go through your journey. If you're a Sydney-based Morningstar Premium subscriber and you'd like to take part, the link to the survey is in our episode notes. If we pick you, we'll extend your premium subscription for a year as a thank you for helping out. Thanks and looking forward to hearing from you. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a share-side investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSite's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. And finally, let's turn to private equity. Now, on the surface, private equity really isn't different from investing in public markets. Most of the mechanisms available to private equity companies are available to public companies. Public companies can bring in new management, implement a new strategy, and improve operations. Public companies can change their capital structure by loading up on debt and returning it to shareholders in dividends and buybacks. And as an investor, you can find the type of company and the management strategy that you want. Yeah, there are two differences with public companies, however. Public shareholders face issues caused by us. And a company controlled by a private equity firm doesn't have to answer to a large group of shareholders as it's controlled by only one or maybe a couple firms. And this can be a good thing. As investors, we are continually exhibiting poor behavior that is inducing companies to exhibit poor behavior. We are short-term focused and punish companies for any drop in short-term profits. So management focuses on the short-term and doesn't make investments that will be beneficial over the long-term. So managers can make splashy acquisitions that later will destroy shareholder value. They can chase fads that may play well in the press, but don't align with their strategy. They can take on too much debt to try and grow, but put the company at risk over the long term. And this kind of reminds me of the episode that um, we did on the book review for The Outsiders, and that looks at CEOs that didn't go with the crowd. Yeah, no, exactly. So while there's almost certainly a liquidity premium, part of that is just because of stupid short-term trading by investors. So when you're investing, think like a private equity firm. Buy a company with a sustainable competitive advantage or moat that does a good job from a capital allocation perspective. You can use our moat ratings and capital allocation ratings to find these companies. Once you bought it, hold it for the long term through ups and downs. Seek out companies with similar long-term shareholders because that long-term perspective will then transfer to management. There's a saying that companies get the shareholders that they deserve. Well, this is your opportunity to be the shareholder that they deserve with the added benefit that trading less has been shown to result in better returns. And certainly the approach that I take, and, you know, I've held a lot of shares longer than you've been alive, (laughs) Sean. Okay. Uh, To be fair, most of your clothes have been around a lot longer than I've been alive. But still fashionable. Yeah. 
kind timeless, of timeless, timeless. Yeah. Yes, that's how I'm described. <laughs> Uh, private equity has also been described as a good investment because it has lower volatility. I'm pretty sure you have some strong feelings about that. So I might even say a rant is coming up, Mark. So you're just setting me up now. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we <laughs> we talked about this before, but this has to be one of the dumber statements out there. And it pretty much sums up the ridiculous and counterproductive way that volatility is views, viewed by the investment industry. So it's kind of like saying you can't gain weight if you don't weigh yourself. What the statement is asking you to accept is that if you have a publicly traded company that gets purchased by a private equity firm, all of a sudden the exact same company is less volatile. The company, of course, isn't any different. The value will still be impacted by the level of interest rates, will be impacted by the economic environment, and will be impacted by the operating ability of management and the overall competitive environment in the sector with which it operates. So all we are saying here is that the day-to-day price movements in a company are irrelevant to its value. Private equity isn't volatile because it isn't valued very often because it's hard to value a private company. Publicly traded companies are in theory valued every second of the trading day, but since their value doesn't change much, it is all noise and is just the price. So if you want to lower volatility and be a long-term investor, stop checking the share price every five minutes. Come up with a thesis about a company and periodically check in and see if that thesis still applies. And just to be clear, a thesis isn't that the share price only goes up. To end this episode and Mark's rant, let's go back to Dave Swenson. He revolutionized investing and there are countless investors around the world that have followed his technique. That, along with the popular portrayal of hedge funds, venture capital and private equity, have created a bit of an allure. But Dave Swenson, who drove a lot of the growth in these alternative assets, wrote a book for individual investors called Unconventional Success, which trashes the funds management industry for not acting in investors' best interests and recommends that most investors are better off just concentrating on asset allocation and using index funds. Well, that's that's quite a way to end an episode on alternative investments. <laughs> um, but anyway, we hope uh, we hope this two-part series did help. We hope it explained a couple different investment vehicles that maybe you're not as familiar with and you probably hear a lot about and also looked at what you can actually use them for in your portfolio and what some substitutes are. And then finally, with the last quote, why maybe most people should just simply ignore this. So thank you very much for joining us. We are about to embark on the crew, the final journey. The final <laughs> journey. Wow, that sounds uh, that sounds Ominous, nice. Yeah, exactly. And this was a listener requested episode. So if you do have any requests for future episodes, please email Mark. His email is in the episode notes. Yeah, or I am reachable via the coconut phone, <laughs> which will be the only way we can communicate. This this thing's going to turn a little into like Survivor, don't mm, you think? Yeah. Who do you think will survive out of us? Probably not me, because I think the first thing you're going to do away from civilization is to murder me. (laughs) But anyway, we're off to, (laughs) we're off on this fun cruise. Um, But thank you guys for joining. We really would appreciate if you could share this episode with your friends and family and also provide a rating and comments on your podcast app. So thank you very much. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.